Hi, this is Erica Potter. And this is Hunter Willis. And this is Hot Girl Briefing. Hey, Erica. Hey, Hunter. So what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about a topic that I think you are absolutely going to love and our listeners, I hope, love it as well. Okay. We'll be talking about Japan's big defense strategy unveiling that just happened a couple weeks ago back in the middle of December. Okay. Love that. Love to hear it. Love yeah, to hear so it. If you guys didn't hear, um, Japan kind of made waves, like mm. ginormous tsunami level waves with the announcement of their new military strategy going forward. And Hunter and I have talked about this before on our Japan Country Analysis, a really great episode to go listen to before mm. this. And also in the episode with, about Shinzo Abe. And the Space where, Force, too, because they had a pretty big presence there as well. Yeah. Or they we were starting to get a really big presence. They were really, like, ramping it up from what I remember. Yeah, they were kind of, like, I would say hinting. Like, some people were pushing. Some people were pushing back. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about this quite a few times before, just in the fact that, you know, after World War II, Japan's military was basically, like, choked off. I don't what, What's the... I can't think of the term. It was really just... It was quelled. It was minimized. It was drastically reduced, to say the least. Yes. And so this new military announcement from Japan was came out in the middle of December and it was huge. Like I would say the entire international community was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. That's so, what we're talking about. I feel like I already gave like a lot away, but you know, I'm just so excited to talk about this Hunter. Listen, I'm here for it. So Erica hit us with like the details of like, just give us like the little background kind of like when exactly, like give us some dates here. Absolutely. So December 16th cabinet of Japanese prime minister, Kishida Fumio, approved the national security strategy. So that is this like 80 page document. They did translate it from Japanese. So we're going to definitely source it for you guys. You can reference it mm-hmm. just detailing uh, their entire plans for their national security. And this is the largest expansion of military power in Japan since the self-defense forces, the SDF were created in 1954. So what is that? Like almost 70 years since anything of this magnitude has been released. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot right there already, just right off the bat. And we did talk about, I remember specifically in the Shinzo Abe episode, we spoke about this, but Prime Minister Kishida has promised to raise the share of the GDP dedicated to the national security to 2% from the 1% cap that they have had for the past four decades. And this was like a really big point of contention in Japan mm-hmm. politics because, you know, some people were like, no, 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 we need to uphold our constitution. We need to stay like, stay keeping peace, stay the pacifist country. And then like people who are more open to expanding the military were like, we need to raise it to 2%, which 2% might not sound a lot to you guys, but it is, you know, double as much as what they used to have. Yes. It's double as much as what they used to have. And Japan's economy is like pretty bumping. Like it is, it is, it's a good economy. It's up there. It's up there. Yeah. And I mean, like you see this with like other, you know, kind of like world war two actors. So like Germany, you know, they're usually a little hesitant and a little shy to go and create, you know, this like larger military infrastructure. So it's not only Japan, it's also Germany, you know, just like actors that may not have had the best history with their military in the past. Nowadays, they are a little shy and hesitant on, you know, upgrading those forces and really bringing them up to kind of like a worldwide standard, like competing with like the US or with NATO or, you know, just bringing them up to a higher capacity than they have. Well, you know, they... They cite their reasoning for the upgrade hunter. And I think it's very interesting. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. Okay. But 
in the strategy, they did three documents. So details just all of what this new national security will look like in Japan. Mm -hmm. and, so, and they clearly thought this out. Like this has been, I feel like it's, they've had it ready to go for a while. Cause they just, again, announced it December 16th of 2022. Mm -hmm. So there was a national security strategy, a 10 year national defense plan and a five year procurement plan. Okay. So, I mean, that sounds pretty like on par with, you know, a lot of like the other big, like military institutions that we see across the world. You're, you're right. But it's different because I just, it's Japan and it's, you know, one I, of those countries like Germany and Japan where they are hesitant. So it's, it's a big deal for Japan, but it's kind of like they're stepping out into almost like a new kind of, they're engaging in a new normal. You're right. And I, I think that one of the part, one of the reasons this makes, this is so kind of shocking is I just think that nobody really saw it coming. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, I think we could have maybe speculated it would have happened, but in the in the future but like so so yeah. soon in the future i would have never predicted like right at the end of 2022 that japan would have like came out with this oh absolutely okay so erica do you want to walk us through kind of like the top points for each one of those documents yeah so the national security strategy basically talks about tokyo's assessment of threats and the dip quote diplomatic economic technological and military instruments it will employ to address them and this is only the second strategy ever, ever given in post-war Japan's history. So again, big deal. And in this strategy where they talked about their assessment, they threw major shade at China, North Korea, and Russia. Okay. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Like super, very like regionally focused, but also like, hey, these are kind of the actors that might spoil something for us. Well, they basically were just like, we... These are these countries are a threat. They're like we need to yeah. arm up, and they specifically called out China, North Korea, and Russia. Which, I mean, Japan has beef with the girlies, so it, it makes sense. Yes, yes. And then in the ten-year national defense plan, they outlined the military enhancements needed for the self-defense forces, the SDF, and it specifically calls for a new integrated operational command for the SDF's three forces and expanded space and cyber capabilities and the acquisition of long range strike capabilities. Okay. So basically Japan is coming out. They're wanting to cover all of their bases. They want to have the space and cyber for the new kind of theaters of war, kind of like the new places that conflict is going to take place in. And they also have, you know, the long range strike capabilities of where they want to, they want to be able to just cover all their bases with that one i think my question is why does a self-defense force need long-range strike capabilities well see so that's kind of like where it comes in of where it's just like you know if you elevate the threat that another actor would face then it kind of comes into it so that's where like the security component comes in of actors do things out of their own self-interest right so if you make it to the point of where when you're giving a threat it's going to be enough that you are going to cause enough harm that that actor chooses not to. Cause it has to kind of, that's the thing with security. It has to meet a certain threshold of where an actor will choose not to do something because it will face X amount of harm. And so it's kind of like when like you're a little kid, you know, you're going around and you're like, Hey, I want to get a candy. And if your parents are like, okay, we'll go and you can do this or you can do that. But if you take the candy, we'll just go and say, you shouldn't do that. The kid might go and take the candy. But if you have the kid going 
and it's like, hey, we're going to put you in timeout for 30 minutes. The kid might think, hey, that's enough of a punishment that I'm not going to do that. So that's kind of where that long range strike comes in of where if an actor is far enough away, then they're like, okay, cool. Well, Japan can't even really like reach us. So like, who cares? Like, we'll just go do it anyways. Like, you know, you can't put me in timeout. But now that that threat is there, it crosses that threshold. So that's kind of like the tricky balance with security. Yeah. And, you know, we do, they do have in our source that we're using, they did talk about what previously Japan had Mm -hmm. and what, what they might potentially be using, which is the long range. But actually before that, I did want to just cover the last part, which I think is the most important part when we're discussing any sort of like overhaul of absolutely sort of plan for a country, which is how we're going to fund it. The Mm -hmm. five-year procurement plan. Okay. And they describe in that plan the priorities for implementing this defense plan, which it was estimated to be at like $320 billion spent in the initial period, which would begin in the next fiscal year, which is 2023, mm-hmm. and run until 2025, 2027. Okay, so that's definitely a fair bit of money. That's insane. That That's, is that is insane. a large amount of money, especially for Japan. I mean, when you know they're not on the same level as the U.S. and China. Yes, Japan's still extremely large economy, one of the top economies in the world. But in terms of its citizen and in terms of its land mass that it has as its own territory, like three hundred twenty billion dollars over five years, that is such a large amount of funding for that. Yeah, I'm really curious to see like where they're going to pull that from. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, it's part of that procurement plan, which was the only one I couldn't find translated from Japanese. I'm hoping it'll be translated mm-hmm. in a few so I could read it. But of, of all the sources that we've read, you know, it they they've kind of kept it a little close to the chest, mm-hmm. you know, just a little I mean, bit. Like, they don't want to like, reveal all their secrets, you know, because yeah, I mean, that makes sense. A lot of militaries, they usually do try and keep like the funding stuff in secret just so you can't see the exact capabilities that they have, because otherwise that just makes it easier for other countries just to be like, oh, cool. They bought seven of these missiles. Cool. We need seven of these things to just go and intercept them or take them down. So kind of makes it a little bit easier for countries to go and, you know, make it so one doesn't have the advantage anymore. So they usually try and keep that a little close to the heart. One thing they're not trying to keep close to the heart hunter is the kind of military they want, the kind of military weapons they want. Mm-hmm. So going back to those um, missiles that we were talking about for the long range conventional strike. Previously, Japan had had what it's called the standoff capability, which was limited range missiles at about 125 miles or 200 kilometers used mm-hmm. for coastal defense. But now they're looking to introduce missiles with like a thousand mile range, which is 1610 kilometers. Yeah. So pretty big jump. Yeah. Because I mean, like, that's kind of just like, okay, cool. It'll just go kind of to the edge of like your exclusive economic zone. We talked a little bit about that in the South China Sea episode with the United Nations Convention, the Law of the Seas of where you have this exclusive economic zone going out onto the continental shelf. So those missiles are really great for that. But the missiles with a thousand mile range that is enough to kind of deter actors like North Korea, who keeps on happening to launch missiles over South Korea and Japan. You know, it's like, that's where I think that Japan is really aiming to go with this strategy. So yeah, they list China and Russia, but I think that they acknowledge that one of their biggest threats is North Korea. So they want to have these capabilities instead of being extremely dependent on the US to have them instead. Yeah, and there is like, 
speculation from our source that I've seen. I think it's a fair speculation of that it could be U.S. made Tomahawk cruise missiles. Now, I don't know anything about missile brands. Um, I can barely tell you <laughs> about the car missile brands. brands. <laughs> I can barely tell you about car brands, but like, I don't think it is a far leap to think that the United States might be supplying some of these military upgrades considering United yeah. States military and Japan and the United States are kind of like besties in that sector. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's really not like a far-fetched thing to think. So, I mean, it's honestly super, super probable that that could be happening. Yeah. And they're also looking to emphasize the development of Japan's indigenous technology. So one thing that I thought was really cool that this, our source pointed out was from their security plan is that they're looking to innovate technology at home as well as bringing in technology from abroad. So mm -hmm. like, you know, they're going to partner up most likely with the United States and maybe other key actors that Japan is friends with mm -hmm. or at least acquaintances with in the international world, one could yeah. say. But they also want to invest in their own like people at home. They want them to come up with technological advancements for defense. Like they're going to put in national investment into research and these this development, not mm -hmm. only abroad, but at home, which I think is intriguing. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, it makes that. sense because you want to have that growing sector as well. So you also foster growth within your own country because God knows, you know, Japan, you know, economically a little dicey at times. We saw, you know, it's a bit of an issue with the aging population. So they're kind of trying to figure out, hey, how can we create ways to have our economy go forward? So now if you have Japan that's producing all these weapons and things like that, then now you're able to have a whole new kind of like portion of your economy that you're opening up and now you can do business in, especially because Japan is so advanced technologically. Like whenever you think of technology, you always think like, cool, like Japan, like, you know, I always think of like Tokyo, one of the most like technologically advanced cities like in the world. So it makes it, it makes sense that they're really trying to do this domestically and create this new market within their economy. Not necessarily new. Cause I mean, it's still there, but a larger share than it was before. Absolutely. And Another thing that they're talking about, I mean, the advancement of weapons, if if they can make the bullet train, I'm I'm yeah. impressed. Mm -hmm. But they I also mean, the US can't even get a single, you know, like yeah. pop and railway system. So the fact that Japan is over here doing everything, like, you know what, props to Japan. The United States needs to take a take a note. I would love to see like a bullet train from like Michigan, Detroit, Michigan to Chicago. Or what was the other the other side grand rapids across lake michigan because mm -hmm. they've talked about that where yeah. it'd be like a 30 minute commute mm -hmm. they need to get on to that they need to get on we Japan's need to do own. an episode on like different countries like transportations that you Absolutely. know what I already brainstormed for another episode y'all yeah. you might see it here soon <laughs> but okay sorry we got off track a little bit just dreaming about the transportation that could be for the united states but anyways mm -hmm. a dream the so they're you know investing national again 320 billion is what their plan is. They're going to put that towards weapons, but they're also going to put that towards the self-defense forces that already exist, which we talked about it expanding. Mm -hmm. um, but they want the SDF to be able to fight as a cohesive force and sustain operations over the course of a crisis or conflict. So they want to develop integrated operational planning, a new joint command, and investing in the force's resilience. Mm-hmm. And this also includes plans to make civilian airfields and ports accessible to the self-defense forces. And in the security, the national security plan, they Japan had highlighted that 
Ukraine inspired Japan with a, quote, sense of urgency when thinking about basic logistical requirements like fuel, ammunition. So they're basically hinting at the fact that they're going to pull like a doomsday preppers vibe, you know, potential stockpile like like the United States did with toilet paper in the first in the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, you know, all of this is kind of making sense because, I mean, you're also seeing the U.S. talk about a lot of where they want to have this increasing kind of like cohesive command structure. So, I mean, the U.S. is coming out with this new joint all domain command and control system. It's kind of a new strategy. So it's called JADC2 kind of colloquially. So you're seeing the U.S. do it. So it's really not a big surprise that Japan is wanting to do it as well, just because it does make for military operations to go a lot smoother because it's all kind of integrated instead of like, cool, like, you know, we'll have you do this, you do this, you do this. And then we all somehow still have to like come together and like make sure that everyone knows what everyone else is doing. Like, it's just this convoluted like spider web almost. So like, it makes sense that they're really trying to stress this, especially because it is such like a technology heavy component that it would be Japan that really wants to make this a thing. They illuminated that in their security plan. Hunter hinted mm-hmm. at it a little earlier where they're kind of like North Korea is doing missiles. Um, and they straight up said that. So when yeah. look when they're explaining why they're making these changes, there were several factors that they included in their strategy plan, but there's one obvious factor that seems to be the key motivator of the growing prevalence of foreign militaries in and around Japan. Mm-hmm. So think about it. You've got North Korea shooting their missiles like it's 4th of July. Mm-hmm. And usually without warning. Yeah, there's and not really ever any warning. Then you've got the Chinese military running operations practically in Japan's backyard in their waters and airspace. Mm-hmm. And then we all know about the East China Sea tension in the Pacific. And finally, we have Russia just deciding that it's okay to invade Ukraine earlier this year yeah so like japan's like hey we kind of need to like get things going we need to like kick it into gear and really advance our military at this point because there are a lot more threats that are kind of popping up as time goes on yeah and in the security plan and i think hunter and i as well we can acknowledge that none of these issues happened overnight like even the war in ukraine it didn't just suddenly happen Mm -hmm. it was long-standing tension of conflict in the area like when Mm -hmm. did the crimea thing happen back in like 2013 yeah it was back 2014 2014 yeah so these have been long-standing issues spanning years but like we talked about in the Shinzo Abe episode, certain leaders in Japan have been campaigning for a military overhaul for a while. They've just been, they've been waiting. They're like, yeah. when can we, when can we finally justify this to the public to get our military overhaul that we want? Yeah. And so it's like, now there's enough issues that Japan and its leadership can feel like, hey, now it's okay to do this, like within this democratic regime. Now it's, there's enough that's happened that we feel like the public will be okay with this. And so- we're seeing that there's a lot of tech involved here and it moves fast, but military restrictions in Japan, they kind of have made the defense sector fall behind. So for a while you have Tokyo, they really highlighted ballistic missile defenses to cope with the volume of missiles. So now you're also seeing this kind of issue come forward with hypersonic missiles. And that's a big thing too. That's a giant concern for almost every military out there because it's a giant new threat that, you know, you haven't really seen before. So you have to learn how to adapt to it. So last summer you had us intelligence. It was reporting that China, they just tested a brand new hypersonic missile and it's 
crazy. It's super maneuverable. It is capable of carrying a nuclear payload. And it also has what is called a fractional orbital bombardment system. So kind of think of almost like stealth missiles and just that they're extremely dangerous for other actors. So for the U.S., big concern, especially that it was China doing this. And also, this is all coming from our source from the Council on Foreign Relations from Sheila Smith. She did a great job covering almost all of this, like great piece. Always go and check out all of our source material. And so just talking about this, like it's crazy because this tech is advancing so fast and it's not just in Japan. You're seeing that this is coming from China where, you know, Japan just said China's becoming a threat. You're seeing North Korea launch all these missiles. Okay. Well, it's not crazy unreasonable to possibly have a connection between North Korea and China that China's technology for these hypersonic missiles may end up somewhere in North Korea. Not saying that it will. And I'm saying that it's, you know, it's not like this is extremely likely. However, it's one of those things of where it is a concern for Japan and Japan voiced this concern with having China and North Korea specifically kind of like put on blast, like in this report. So it's no real kind of like question of where it's like, oh, well, like, why is Japan scared? Like Japan's very reasonably scared. So I think we should all be scared, Hunter. What I read about this missile now, hypersonic glide technology itself was not new, but when I was reading about it, what makes these missiles so dangerous and like just again, like you said, stealth missiles is because Mm -hmm. they can like change course. So yeah, if like I think previously before the hypersonic glide technology, that was not something that missiles were capable of doing. So you could kind of Mm -hmm. defend against them more. These these suckers, they just like pop all around. They can move, and now that I think the China missile that they were having allowed nuclear technology mm-hmm. with that like that is terrifying that yeah it's I mean, just kind of bipping and bopping with a nuclear warhead on top like that is yeah that's yeah it's very understandable why japan is scared and so you're seeing that this is also causing like fear in japan so there was a yomiuri gallup poll and essentially what it resulted in was that 90 percent of japanese respondents said that they did not trust china And then 61% of them believe that Beijing would invade Taiwan. So you're seeing that the Japanese public is also fearful. It's not just Japanese leadership that's kind of capitalizing on this moment. Like you're seeing that Japanese citizens, they are also, they, they have this fear of China and they have this fear of the actors that are around them because they are a little threatening. They're not a little, they are threatening to Japan where you're launching missiles over them. You have this crazy new tech that, nobody can truly kind of like, you know, keep up with like, that's terrifying. So it makes sense that Japanese citizens are also scared. So that's kind of why this is all happening right now. And this didn't happen five years ago. It's not happening five years in the future. It's happening now in this moment. Just to give a little comparison as to what Japan was previously working with, which again, they're about to have 320 billion. I can't stop saying that number because a, I'm watching gossip girl again. And mm-hmm. also I cannot just, I cannot fathom that kind of wealth, mm-hmm. but Hunter, actually, this is a source you may recognize. I did pull it from one of our own episodes. If you want think, to talk about, I, I think the people may recognize it too. So, yeah. you know, back from our country analysis segment, just a little fun throwback to the CIA world fact book. So tons of great information on there, especially like the demographic sections. It's amazing. Totally check it out. It's a great source. We always love the CIA world fact book, CFR, CSIS great sources on here. So 
specifically looking at the military and defense section on there, it talks about how 1% of the GDP in 2019, 2020, and estimated for 2021 was going towards Japan's defense. They have around 245,000 active personnel. And so Japan's alliance with the U.S., it makes up one of the largest pieces of its security strategy where the U.S. has nearly 55,000 troops in Japan, and it has exclusive usage of the 80 bases. So there's a lot riding on the U.S.-Japan strategic partnership right there because the U.S. has such a large share of the kind of defense strategy within Japan. So Erica, do you want to go on and kind of talk about like where all of these like concepts are like coming from? Yes. So this next source is actually from Japan's Ministry of Defense themselves. Okay. Um, lo- and- we love a primary source. I know, right? So this is, again, going to be talking about the national security strategy, but it's going to be talking about when when you come up with a new, I guess, policy, like it can't go against what is already existing. And we talked about this before with the it written in their constitution after World War II that they wouldn't build up their military again. So obviously with their new security strategy, it had to play into the constitution. Like it had to, I, I keep thinking of work and how we have these like key uh, key indicator points it's something it's like okr something like that people who Mm -hmm. corporate girlies will understand what i'm talking about when i say okrs or kpis Mm -hmm. um but basically so they their constitution is playing a role in that and so um going a little tbt as to why japan had to basically denounce their military was article 9 of the constitution and this is a direct quote from the Constitution itself from Japan's Ministry of Defense, Mm -hmm. quote, aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes, unquote. Yeah. So basically, Japan's not allowed to ever start a war. Yep. And yeah, I I mean, that's in the Constitution. So if you have the leader of the country going and starting it, going against the Constitution, probably not a great thing, probably grounds for removal. I mean, just like it would be in the US. So very, very much so that, yeah, don't ever do this again. And so, yeah, very much like a zeitgeist, a piece of the times here. So that's kind of where I was saying earlier, like with Germany and Japan, they are these like unique actors that kind of have this almost like internal constraint on their military. I mean, it says forever in there. Like when I read forever, I was like, Mm -hmm. dang, that's that's hardcore. They they literally said no war. No, no, us initiating war for the rest of this country's existence. That's that's a big statement to put there. So, Erica, do you want to take it back and put it in kind of like modern times and talk about like the new kind of concepts? Yes. So, based on the basic policy on national defense, which was adopted by the National Defense Council and the cabinet in May of 1957, uh, Japan, you know, basically talked about their emphasis on the importance towards peace through collaboration, which I feel like before any sort of security council, I mean, not just in Japan, but I feel like in any security council um, model United Nations debate, we've had you always hear, we want to emphasize peace and collaboration. And then you like segue into starting others. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like diplomatically, you have to put that in there, but you all know that this document is not about peace. It's about what happens kind of like in a wartime almost. Yes. So like Hunter and I's model United Nations experience, 
Uh, mm-hmm. This segues into the need of a foundation as a basis, as Japan calls it, for national security through, quote, stabilization of livelihood of the people, dot, 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 et cetera. And then the buildup of efficient defense capability and the Japan-United States security arrangements as the basis of Japan's defense, mm-hmm. unquote. So they're basically saying Japan and the United States, we need to come together. Our self-defense forces plus the United States is going to equal Japan's defense. And another quote, the objective of national defense is to prevent direct and indirect aggression, but once invaded to repel such aggression and thereby to safeguard the independence and peace of Japan based on democracy, unquote. And there's four key policies that tie into their objective, and we're not going to read them line by line here just for time's sake, but we highly recommend going to our sources and giving the policy read to get an idea of how they worded it. Because again, we have told you guys before, wording is key. Language yes. in a policy, in a plan is like everything you need to see, whether how vague it is, whether how specific it is, like that is that is the bread and butter. You need to read every single word. That so, and then like we've said it before and we'll say it again, you know, we're here to go and give this information to you guys and we're going and looking at these documents. We're looking at it from a very in the know type of perspective that we're making this podcast for people that don't necessarily know the kind of like ins and outs of international relations, kind of understand like the deep, deep like nuances of it all. But this is one of those things of where if you want to go and look at it, the document is there and definitely like go take a look at it. Like if you're interested, absolutely. Like that's like why we put these sources on our website. You know, we're not just collecting this information just from out of thin air. We're not just making all of this up. Like it's coming from these sources. And especially when you can get it from a primary source like this and you can actually go through and read through. Yeah, we've selected, you know, specific quotes and components to pull out of it, but definitely go and look at them because there's other policies that are also kind of included in this. So it's talking about defensive force, how it's only ever used in the event of attack and to the extent that the force is kept under the minimum necessary level to actually defend themselves. So there's no aggression here. It's strictly defensive. So basically, as soon as Japan kind of takes them, drives them out of Japan, and kind of limits like their long range, like like capabilities of just striking Japan just from like, you know, if it's in China, then it's like, hey, you know, we're going to kind of eliminate those like coastal like missile systems. Then, you know, after that, Japan's kind of like, okay, like we repelled the threat no more. Like they're not going to go in like a giant land invasion into China. That's not that's one of the policies that's put in there. It's also saying that there will not be that Japan won't become a military power. So pretty much Japan, they can't possess or maintain a military capability that's strong enough to pose a threat to other countries aside what they need for their self-defense. So that's why Japan, you know, 245,000 troops. Yeah, that's a lot of troops. However, you still have that partnership with the U.S. and you also have a lot going on there of where it is an island country. So, you know, you're going to require a lot more people kind of to be on like boats and ships because they require a lot of personnel and a lot of crew. So it makes sense of why their troop count is a little bit higher. And so it's a little vague on that, but it's also kind of like, okay, well, who exactly is determining this piece of self-defense? And so it's very open for interpretation. So that's why you see some people that are arguing, hey, we need a lot more for our military because it's all for self-defense. But then you're also seeing people that are saying, no, like we don't, what are you talking about? We don't need long range ballistic missiles. That's not defense, but you know, you have other people arguing, yes, it is for defense because it's deterrence and deterrence essentially is a form of defense because then you don't even get into the war in the first place. So that's where it's really open to interpretation. And that's where within these kind of like foreign policy circles, 
that's where you start to kind of see tension on military and defense policy. And then Erica, do you want to head us into the kind of like the non-nuclear principles that are also in there? And then I know that there's one after that too, that we're going to talk about. Yeah, actually, I did want to make one comment about the, the wording Mm-hmm. that you were just discussing about how it was, you know, just kind of open to interpretation, I guess, mm-hmm. or one could view it that way, I should say. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is just a, this is redefining the basic policy that was been in existence for like almost 70 years. It's very interesting, the wording that they choose of, again, like one could say, oh, what is what is self-defense? 500,000 guys lined up, or girls, or mm-hmm. anybody really, Mm-hmm. lined up on the coast just waiting for anybody to attack and you know and one could other one could also say oh well that'll provoke countries that are i mean we already talked about china doing military operations basically in their backyard like that could provoke china so it's just mm-hmm. very convoluted um yeah and i i just i feel very strongly that what they chose to say says a lot more than what the words are actually written i guess Absolutely. that's my own personal opinion mm-hmm Um, But going into the three non-nuclear principles, at no surprise, there is a stipulation about not possessing, producing, or allowing nuclear weapons to be brought into Japan because nuclear weapons don't exactly say Mm. (laughs) self-defense. I mean, they can, they can, but that that's definitely for like another episode. But listen, I just had a TA class on nukes this last quarter, and nuclear weapons absolutely can serve as a deterrence. But given Japan's very unique history with nuclear weapons, it's not a giant surprise that Japan would actively choose to not possess nuclear weapons. That's as fair. a form of deterrence. That's fair. I just I feel like it's a very aggressive form of deterrence. Like oh, it it's absolutely kind of like is. getting a monster truck and then saying, well, I just want to make sure I'm safe on the road. And it's kind of like, you could have gotten a Kia. Like, <laughs> Listen, you... I, I agree with you. It's a very aggressive form of deterrence, but it is a form of deterrence. So, And especially because Japan knows what it's implying if they if they were to, in fact, get nuclear, which obviously they can't with this principle that they're introducing. But I feel like they, they would know this message they're sending if they were to get it as a deterrent. Be like, we're not going to use this. We're just just in case. Yeah, it's no. kind of like, you know, countries have evolved to understand what possessing nuclear weapons essentially means for them. So, yeah. And so, I mean, not only do they have this, you know, own principle written in their new national defense plan, but there is also the atomic energy law that prohibits Japan from manufacturing and possessing nuclear weapons. And also under the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons, NPT, Japan has an obligation as a non-nuclear weapons state not to manufacture or acquire nuclear weapons. So we've got three safeguards preventing Mm -hmm. them from getting nuclear weapons, you know. Then we have the next part, which Hunter, do you want to talk about it or I can? Yeah, I'll I'll just jump in. So the last policy in there that's kind of like the additional policies is called securing civilian control. So it's referring to the priority of politics to the military or democratically political control of military strength in a democratic state. So kind of think like how the president is the commander in chief. The president is a civilian. It's not a military leader. So that position is a democratically elected position that is in control of the military. So looking at the diet, which represents the people. So it's the national legislature. So it makes the decisions regarding legislative and budgetary issues on self-defense on the self-defense force or the SDF as we've been calling it throughout this episode. 
and the personnel and the organization. So basically also the operations also require approval from them as well. So it's really putting this emphasis on civilian control over the military. Also, just going back, I do think that I mispronounced that. I believe it is called Diet. So just want to put that out there. We want to make sure that we're pronouncing everything accurately within this episode. So just putting that in there. But yeah, so it's really emphasizing this civilian control over the military. Like you said, Hunter, the the Diet approves or it, the military requires approval from the Diet, which is great to know that there are legislative safeguards in advance. Mm-hmm for any sort of changes. So I guess the military can't just go crazy and acquire nukes, even though, you know, we just talked about the non-nuclear principles. Yeah. Like it's, it's going to be pretty, it's an extremely low percentage that you're ever going to see like a military coup here, like taking over because like the military is under control of civilian leadership. Yes. It's monitored. I know that that was the end of, I mean, again, the, the, we talked about the national security plan being about like 80 pages. There's like three parts to it. So please, if you guys want to see it, I we highly recommend going and reading it. Um, but obviously, we can't go over an 80-page document. Just summarize yeah. the most important parts. Mm-hmm. But the next thing we want to talk on is how other countries responded, which I think yeah. is the most exciting part of any sort of major overhaul of a policy change. Yeah. So we're going to take two, and we're going to take one allied country, and then we're going to take one very opposing country. So Erica, do you want to head us into the allied country? Yes. So welcoming Japan's new national security strategy, the national defense strategy and defense buildup from none other than the United States. So Anthony J. Blinken, Secretary of State, in a press statement said that the U.S. and the U.S. Department of State welcomed Japan's new strategies, which were announced on December 16th, and quote, our alliances and partnerships are our most important strategic asset in Japan's new documents reshaped the ability of our alliance to promote peace and protect the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific region and around the world, unquote. So their big stance, <laughs> which again is not a surprise. And another quote is, we applaud Japan's commitment to modernize our alliance through increased investment in enhanced roles, missions, and capabilities and closer defense cooperation with the United States and other allies and partners as outlined in these new documents. Mm-hmm. Unquote. So yeah, they're they're basically setting the tee up for Japan and the United States to move forward together with this new military strategy. Now, not everyone's a fan. As we talked about, some countries may have been name-dropped in the threat assessment, and one of those definitely was not happy to hear about Japan's new national security strategy. Hunter, if you want to talk about that one. The really angsty country that was not pleased with this was none other than North Korea. So North Korea, they on the 20th of December, they condemned Japan's new security strategy. They said that it was dangerous. They said that they are going to come up with these kind of like counter reactions to this. And so they also warned of like more missile tests, which really comes as no surprise because this is kind of a strategy of diplomacy that North Korea uses and deterrence is, you know, because it is a form of deterrence. North Korea tends to rely on this. They tend to rely on, hey, you do something, you do something that's going to upset us. We're going to do something that's going to upset you. So they go for that. So how is that usually done? It's used with intercontinental ballistic missiles because it really stirs up everyone's emotions and feelings and they all get pretty angry and upset about it, which reasonably so if you're launching a 
missile over a country. I feel like that's extremely reasonable to be upset and fearful and angry about that. So no surprise I was going to say, like, that yeah. is... I yeah, can imagine so, strong emotions. That's yeah, so really no, no surprise. surprise that there's going to be strong emotions listed for this. And that's exactly what North Korea aims to do. So their foreign ministry, they basically said that Japan had effectively formalized, quote, the capability for preemptive attack with this new strategy and that it would bring a, quote, radical, end quote, change to East Asia's security environment, which I don't really disagree with North Korea on that last portion of that statement, like it is going to bring a radical change to East Asia's security environment. It 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 just is. The fact that you're seeing Japan go and have this kind of domestic reshaping of military power, that is going to really reshape East Asia's security environment. That's really no surprise there. I, I don't know how anybody could kind of disagree with that. So I will say North Korea's foreign ministry, they're correct on that part. Um, I, they have increased the capability for a preemptive attack that also is there. So just because you have a weapon and you're using it in the form of deterrence, it doesn't mean that it can't still be an offensive and hold those offensive capabilities. So honestly, the foreign ministry from North Korea, they're not incorrect about all of this. It's, they're not wrong. You know, like it, it is changing the environment. It is creating a new capability for Japan. So I, I mean, we can't really fault them and say that they're incorrect on that one, which normally North Korea, they have a lot of, you know, propaganda going out, really framing everyone as like something so much more horrible than it truly is. Like it's truly like life and death, but at the same time, operating as a rational actor based off of their own interests, North Korea, they are framing those perceptions themselves. And so it's no surprise that they frame this this way as well. And so the ministry, they also condemn the U.S. for kind of going along and enabling Japan. And essentially they called it a rearmament and reinvasion scheme. Um, and so this is from Japan today is from Hyun Hee Shin and Su Hyung Choi. So great reporting work on their part. I mean, it really is interesting, like how exactly the North Korean foreign ministry is talking about this. And then they have a quote in there, quote, the foolish act of Japan seeking to gratify its black hearted intention Arms buildup for reinvasion under the pretext of the DPRK's legitimate exercise of the right to self-defense can never be justified and tolerated. And this was coming from an official statement from North Korea's like state news agency. So, I mean, don't get Sorry, me wrong. That is that is so funny. OK, like, like <laughs> it's very it's very life and death. And so don't get me wrong. Like there is a very intricate history between the Korean Peninsula and Japan, you know, there was a lot that has gone on there historically, militarily. So I can understand why North Korea would kind of have this fear of it. But just I think that that was a lot of very, very strong language. And I don't know if I would go that far with it. But just based on who North Korea is as an actor, I can understand why they did. It, it just read like a comic book statement. Yeah, because the next part, the spokesperson, they also warned of a, quote, shuddering shiver to be soon to be felt soon, end quote. So it is very much like a like. I don't know, they really went, they wrote this up, to say the least. They were feeling some strong emotions. They were yeah. processing them during their news report. And diplomatically, <laughs> you don't normally see such strong language. So it, I mean. It is pretty strong language. It's pretty intense. Yes, absolutely. Also, just quick correction. I accidentally said Anthony 
or Anthony instead of Anthony J. Blinken for the Secretary of State for the United States. Just wanted to pop that in there. Mm. Sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, it was, I just, I know that it is, you know, a serious thing. Like you mentioned, Hunter, there's intricate history and tension involved between North Korea and Japan. But like that is, I just can't get over it. That's, it was a very like, intense statement. Black hearted intention um foolish act of japan like i just i never the shuddering really shiver like yeah, that no. is that's a lot right there that's pretty intense like a shuddering shiver to be felt soon i i think that that's honestly one of the more most intense like pieces of a statement uh, of an official statement that i've ever seen yes I, and especially in regards to like international diplomacy like this isn't some you know uh i don't know how to say it best but like this isn't some just like fluff topic this is yeah, about it's a, a very, national very... defense security strategy. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, I mean, you're seeing these two completely different perspectives take place on this, which, you know, they're both correct in their own way. Like it is going to reshape the entire security environment in East Asia. You're also seeing that, you know, as an ally to Japan, the U.S. is applauding them for modernizing and, you know, coming up with these enhanced capabilities that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So it's really interesting, and I think that it's going to be even more interesting going forward and seeing how this strategy actually evolves and plays out, especially just because the procurement strategy is just for the next five years. So going and seeing the next 10 to 15 years, that's where it's going to be really interesting to see if they keep up with this pace, if they advance this pace, or if they slow down from the pace that they've set for themselves. Yep. So we will all just have to wait and see. I mean, it's you know it's already going to start it's, this year. It's so. hot girl briefing. We're always going to wait and see. Which, by the way, we never said Happy New Year to all of our listeners, Hunter. Yes. So Happy New Year. Once again, congrats. Y'all have pushed us past the quarter million listener mark. So we just want to give a big giant shout out to everyone, especially everyone that made it to the end of the episode. We know that this is a really long episode, but there was a lot to cover here. Once again, I mean, North Korea said it best. It's going to radically change East Asia's security environment. And as one of the new kind of theaters of potential conflict, it's a really big deal in international relations right now. Yep. So let us know what you think about the episode. Make sure to check out our sources. We have some really good ones. And again, they're all translated from Japanese to English, but they're also translated to many other different kinds of languages. For So for all of our international listeners, you can also join in on the fun of reading this national security strategy. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys all so much for tuning in and we will see you guys next week for your next episode of your hot girl briefing. Bye. Bye.